So the words good morning have been used several times so far, and so I'm going to use a different language for good morning, and it's in Hebrew. Boker Tov. I, when I taught um, high school Bible in Alaska, I would teach the kids to say Boker Tov every morning, and I would say, it sounds like broke your toe, you know, and they, they liked that, they laughed, they enjoyed it. But um, no, good morning. Um, this morning, um, I've really just felt overwhelmed just by the, the richness of the benefits that I and all of us have in Christ. Um, from the worship songs that sing of the unique love of God to the prayer that extolled the holiness of our God um, to the Advent message that also talked about just the unique love of God. We truly have these benefits in Christ like no one has ever experienced. We have benefits from Christ. We have benefits that no one in this world besides believers experience. You know, there's, there's lots of, you know, gifts we're looking forward to for um, this month, this season, and, but we truly have benefits like none else. And that's what this message this morning is about. And it's about these promises, these benefits that we have um, when we serve Christ for belonging to Christ. And what just excites me so much is that we find um, this in one verse in the Old Testament of all places. And this really was to prepare Israel for what the Lord had promised them in the future. And when we look at verses in the New Testament, there's something we realize in 1 Peter 2, um, verses 9 through 12, is that these promises, the Lord promised for Israel, these great benefits, we're experiencing them right now in the church. Now, I personally believe Israel will, will see them in the future. Um, I know there's different stances of that in this church. Um, but here's something we all can take away. Whatever's going to happen to Israel in the future, what do we have now? The New Testament is very clear is that we have these benefits and they are centered on Christ. And what we're going to see in one verse this morning, 1 Samuel 2.35, are the great benefits that um, are there for those who belong to Christ and serve Christ the Messiah. Um, last week I bit off more than I can choose, so I thought maybe I'll just do one verse this week. <laughs> so... That's kind of the plan there. But uh, before I begin, let's bow our heads in prayer to our Lord. Father God in heaven, Lord, you are holy. There is no one like you. Um, there is no love like your love. There is, no, um, there is no peace like your peace. All of the characteristics that describe you, Lord, you are truly holy in every single one of them. I pray that this morning your Holy Spirit um, would do his work in your people through the preaching and teaching of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would um, bless my, my stammering lips, Lord. Um, I pray that you would enable me in such a way to teach with clarity, Lord, teach with conviction, teach with boldness, teach with the aim of glorifying your son. We pray all these things in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to revisit last week's message, but I'm going to focus on one verse, 1 Samuel 2.35. 
Um, kind of a summary of last week, if you were not here, if we needed a summary, we looked at this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 36, that was meant to prepare Israel for the kingdom that the Lord gave them under the future reign of the Messiah. That's what First and Second Samuel is all about. In 2 Samuel 7, whenever we get there, we're going to learn and read about something called the Davidic Covenant. We're going to learn in the New Testament that Christ, he is the Messiah, and he owns the Davidic covenant. He is the ultimate David, right? And so what we find is everything of First and Second Samuel is preparing Israel to be the kind of people, the kind of nation, the kind of ministers that they need to be under the rule of the Messiah, and again, as I mentioned earlier, all of this is instructional for us as Christians, too, because we belong to a kingdom, as it says in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. We are also called priests, and we are under the rule of the Messiah, Christ, who is head of the church. So all of this is very instructional. As I said earlier, what we're going to be reading in 1 Samuel 2, 35 um, while on one hand, the passage is talking about a future reality Israel will experience, we experience these blessings and realities now. With that, I'm just going to quickly read 1 Samuel 2.35. The verse says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This is the verse that we are going to be looking at this morning. And what I want to quickly do is kind of just describe my thoughts on why this verse is really important to me and kind of the, kind of just the method I'm going to use to looking at this verse. I want to talk about what's really jumping out of the page here and that's really important for us to know. Well, one would be there is um, the identity of two characters in this verse. If you look down, one of them's called faithful priest, a faithful priest. Another character is called anointed one, the anointed one. Um, again, I've said before many times, this is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which, where we get the word, the title, Messiah. So we need to first know the identity of these two characters and look at how they relate to one another. And this will tell us what the author was trying to encourage Israel to do. And this will also tell us how as a church, how we relate and how this should motivate us to live. Okay, so what I want to do first is talk about the identity of these two characters. We have the a faithful priest, and we have um, where it says, my anointed one. So another way we can say is Yahweh's anointed. I want to take us through the anointed one first. Because once we learn the uh, identity of the anointed one here, then it kind of rules out who the faithful priest can be. We know that in the book of Hebrews that Christ is the faithful high priest. We also know in the Bible that there's not just one priest. Israel had a high priest and then they had many other priests. Also at the same time, the nation were to be collectively a kingdom of priests. We look at the church, um, we know that Christ is the high priest. 
And we're also told in 1 Peter 2, 9, 11, what are we? We're priests, right? Not in the sense of the, of the office and function. Not everyone is a uh, pastor, elder. But collectively, as a whole, we are all ministers to the world. We represent who Christ is to the world. And so what we're going to look at first is the identity of Yahweh's anointed. You'll hear me say Messiah sometimes. It's interchangeable. I think it's helpful to use the term Messiah. And you'll see that for how I teach the identity of this anointed one. So, and I, I believe I mentioned it last week for the identity of this anointed one. Um, I only referenced it quickly, but so we first asked a question, how do we know the identity of the anointed one, right? It mentions the term here in 1 Samuel 2.35, but doesn't give a lot more detail. Well, what we can do and how we study the Bible is that you look at the immediate context. Is there anything around the verse to kind of help you explain who is this person? Um, and so the immediate context, there's two things, two requirements that the immediate context gives us for the identity of this anointed one. Um, that would be if you turn back a page to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. What we see in 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, is another reference of this anointed one. And so what we see is that we put both of these together, we get more of a clear picture of who is this anointed one. So 1 Samuel 2.10 says, The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. In summary, here is what we see from these two passages, and specifically 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, about the identity of this anointed one. Another way to put it is that this anointed one refers to the person that Moses wrote about in the Pentateuch. He wrote about this person who would be this coming, delivering, and conquering, and reigning deliverer, king. Moses writes about him in passages like Genesis 3.15, Genesis 22.17. That's a promise where the Lord tells Abraham he's going to have lots of descendants, but one of his descendants is going to possess the gate of his enemies. That means he's going to be a conqueror. He's going to rule. Um, in Genesis 49, 8 through 12, it's a very popular verse. It describes from the tribe of Judah, there's going to come a king. He's going to have a scepter. That's the, that's the image, the picture of someone who reigns and rules. And it talks about, it describes this time in the world when this king reigns, there's going to be a lot of prosperity. And it kind of, if you ever read Genesis 49, 8 to 12, it kind of describes prosperity in a funny way to us. It talks about how, you know, someone's going to have a vine and he's going to tie his donkey to the vine. And we're like thinking like, why is that a big deal? Why am I reading about someone tying his donkey to a vine? Well, 
the picture is it pictures prosperity. Um, donkeys like to kick around. They don't like to listen a lot, you know. And so it's just like you have so many vines, and vines itself at that time pictured prosperity that you could tie your donkey to it, and it doesn't matter because you have so much. Um, and so there is this one Moses wrote about, Genesis 3.15. He's going to crush the head of Satan. 22.17, he's going to have victory over his enemies. 49.8-12, he's going to have a kingdom, and that scepter will never depart from him, so his kingdom's going to be forever. And there's going to be prosperity. Exodus 15, um, which is a song of Moses, where Moses sings about how God is going to come and reign on his holy mountain. Um, Numbers 24, it's a prophecy where the Lord used someone named Balaam to talk about how there's going to be this coming star. He's going to see this star, this scepter that comes from Israel, and he's going to reign. What Moses is doing in, in all of those passages, he's repeating these themes that God is going to send someone to reign and accomplish his will. Um, there's, there's one author, his name is John Salehammer. He actually looks at the position of these texts, and he's actually saying the positions of these texts that run from Genesis through Deuteronomy 32 that talk about the Messiah, that it's, it's actually functioning as kind of a, um, a literary device that shows the structure of the Pentateuch, because we believe that Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He actually wrote them as one big book. And so what authors have done who've studied it closely, they'll say not only can we actually see in just the, just the plain reading of the text that Moses wrote of this Messiah, but it's actually the structure of the Pentateuch. So if that's the structure, that means the whole point of the Pentateuch is God's promise of Christ. So what we're going to see in 1 Samuel 2.10 and 2.35 is this term, anointed one. And so what happens there is that Hannah in 1 Samuel 2.10 is praying this prayer of her thanks to God. And she's actually in her prayer alluding to many of those verses I just told you about that Moses talked about the Messiah. And then she coins the term Messiah for that promised king. Hannah is the first person to use the term Messiah to talk about the promised king in the Bible. And I believe that she had the ability to do that, one, from the uh, blessing and power of the Holy Spirit in her personal life, and two, she really knew her Bible. Um, when, I, when I realize how much Hannah knew and, and read in her prayer, I get, I get quite embarrassed. Um, and also inspired to teach my children to do the same. But the, the, the whole point what I'm trying to get on is that in 1 Samuel 2.10, Hannah is talking about several um, requirements that she knows the Messiah will fulfill. Um, and so those requirements, those requirements, there's, there's several of them. I want to go over them, I want to go over them briefly. So first of all, we have that he will, uh, the Messiah, will be God's agent in his judging the earth. 
that, that the Messiah will be God's agent that he uses to judge the earth. And we're going to look at a moment at a passage in Psalm 2. If you want to quickly turn there, we're, we're going to be looking at these similarities between the anointed one who judges the earth in 1 Samuel 2.10 and this anointed one who judges the earth in Psalm 2. Here's what we're going to see is that there's all these similarities between them and they're like in the same exact order. Um, and so in that way, the author of Psalm 2 knew 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, knew the anointed one. I believe David wrote Psalm chapter 2, and he's describing this anointed one, this Messiah, with Hannah's prayer in mind. It's not the first time Hannah's prayer is used. Um, in Mary's Magnificat, in what's described in the book of Luke, much of her prayer is almost a, a same exact copy of what Hannah prayed. And so it was not the first time that people looked back at what Hannah wrote and they used this to write of the Messiah. So here is what's really neat as we look at the similarities between 1 Samuel 2 and Psalm 2. Both of them have the following in common. Yahweh's enemies are against him and his anointed. So um, that's in, we'll call it 1 Samuel 2.10a, that first little clause, that's what we see there. But it, when you read Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, here's what you see, is that there is enemies coming against Yahweh and his anointed one and his Messiah. Well, then here's what we see. Yahweh deploys his anointed, his Messiah, against his enemies. Look at the second clause in 1 Samuel 2.10b. And you look at Psalm chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. You see that Yahweh is deploying his, his Messiah against his enemies in warfare. And also, we see in um, 1 Samuel 2.10 is that Yahweh's anointed is described as functioning as the king of Israel. And so that's in both those passages. Uh, we also see that Psalm chapter 2 refers to the Messiah as the son, as the son of, as in he's the son of God. Uh, we see another similarity. Yahweh gives his anointed, or his Messiah, the strength he needs for victory over his enemies. You can see that in 1 Samuel 2.10, and also in Psalm 2, 8 through 9. And then we see um, that the like the breath, the totality, the completeness of the victory of the Messiah is described in the terms, the ends of the earth. So it's saying everything, that when this prophecy is fulfilled, there is not one square inch of the world that Christ has not conquered, that this Messiah has not conquered. That's what the ends of the earth means. Okay, so when the author of Psalm 2 is writing about Yahweh's anointed, he understands this person to be that promised king. That's in 1 Samuel 2 that Moses wrote about in the Pentateuch. Simply put, the anointed one in those passages is the promised king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So that is the first requirement for this anointed one. And why is it important to go over these requirements? 
Um, well, because uh, different authors seem to be puzzled about the identity of the anointed one. Some want to say that the anointed one in 1 Samuel 2.35 refers to any, um, any king um, who is David or in the line of David. And why is that the case? Well, here's what we're going to see in 1 Samuel, is that this term Messiah is also going to be used of David. And so some people say maybe it's David it's referring to. And maybe this is just referring to the high priest that the Lord puts under David and his line, right? Well, there's another person referred to using the word Messiah in 1 Samuel. It might shock you. It's Saul, right? And so um, part of the reason is that we see that Samuel, excuse me, David and Saul, they're opposites, we start to learn what is Christ's kingdom going to be like by looking at David. If you want to know what, Saul's, uh, what Christ's kingdom is not supposed to look, at, look like, you look at Saul. Um, and so even with that in mind, yes, the term is used of David, but what we just saw here, Hannah's prayer, and then we have this prophecy in 235, there's nothing in between where it seems like the author wants us to look at them as two different people. We're looking at the Messiah here. And just to verify that even more, there's another requirement for the anointed one. And we actually see that in 1 Samuel 2.35. If you look down at 1 Samuel 2.35, the last clause says, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. This language here of going in and out, I have the ESV, some translations translate it, he shall walk before my anointed forever. This is a very um, rare construction or phrase used in the Hebrew Bible. Um, I believe it is used 10 times. Eight of those times talk about how someone is walking before the Lord. The other two times I can go into more detail later about why that doesn't impact what this phrase means. I won't get into that now. You can, you can ask me later if you'd like though. But here's what we see is that this phrase, the language of someone walking before the Lord is used strictly for someone walking with God. And um, just a few passages um, Genesis 17.1. Um, and also, let's go back to the thing of immediate context. Look down a few verses earlier to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 30. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father shall go in and out before me forever. Just four verse, five verses earlier, this same language of walking before going in and out is used of the Lord. So as they're reading this, and they come four verses later, they're thinking, wait, I've heard this phrase before, of walking before someone. And it's the majority of the time used of someone's relationship with God. So what this means, the second requirement, that this Messiah is God. That's the second requirement. So, all of this, all of this is helpful for us to then look at the identity of the second character, 
which is just as important to know, which is just as important for us to know. And the identity of the second person, he's described as a faithful high priest. We'll, we'll note here is kind of a generic, as in there could be more than one faithful high priest in this context. It doesn't say that there's only one. So having established a faithful priest, make sure I said that right. If I said high priest, I made a mistake. There is only one high priest. So the, having established the identity of Yahweh's anointed as Christ the Messiah, we need to know the importance of this, um, of this reference to a faithful priest. So here's what I want to walk us through quickly is that we're looking at this specific prophecy, is that this is a prophecy. God sent a prophet to deliver a message to Eli, to tell Eli, I am one day going to remove you and your family from being priests to me. And he's saying, I'm going to raise up a different priest, a different line of priests. And so that is what is in view here, is that the Lord in this passage, first of all, is talking about a literal, specific fulfillment. So, as we read the rest of the of Old Testament, First and Second Samuel and Kings and the Prophets, here's a quick fly through of the Lord's plan to fulfill this promise with this faithful priest, and this is helping us understand who this faithful priest is. If you turn to 1 Kings 2.27, I'm, I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there, but you are more than welcome to do so. 1 Kings 2.27, we read, we read how the Lord removed the last person from Eli's line as priests. So Solomon expelled Abiathar, he's from Eli's line, from being priest to the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. So this passage is looking at the verse preached last week, right, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and there's a time when Solomon removed the last person in the line of Eli from being priest to fulfill one part of the prophecy, but here's something we see in prophecy, how the Lord works in prophecy, is that there are different stages to the Lord fulfilling it. And so there's also a need for a, for a new priest. Look down at verse 35 in 1 Kings chapter 2. It says that the king put Benaiah, the son of, um, oh boy, I'm getting in trouble for not pronouncing this ahead of time, Jehoah, Jehoiada, I think it's Jehoiada, the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. There we go. We have another stage in the Lord fulfilling his promise. The Lord often fulfills his promises in stages, right? Now, we also get a glimpse of the what can be described as the ultimate fulfillment, or some people who use like nerdy language is consummation, you know, of this promise. 
It's this future time when Israel will experience that prophecy that God gave fully. In Ezekiel 40, 46, and this is one of several verses in Ezekiel that talk about this future time when Zadok's family will be serving the Lord in what is often called the millennial kingdom. When Christ returns, sets up his kingdom, we have Zadok's family serving. And in, for, in Ezekiel 40, 46, well, let's start with verse 45. We read this in the context of this new temple that the Messiah brings. And he said to me, this chamber that faces south is for the priests who have charge of the temple. And the chamber that faces north is for the priests who have charge of the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who alone among the sons of, Le of Levi may come near to the Lord to minister to him. And then it gives some measurements in verse 47. So what I want to draw our attention to is that there is, in this future time, a reference to Zadok, who we just read in uh, 1 Kings replaced Eli's line. So what was Israel, and this, this really brings us to application. This brings us to the so what. This brings us to the so what and the application. That with Ezekiel in mind, and the passage in 1 Samuel 2.35 in mind, the author was wanting Israel to look forward to something. The author was wanting Israel, who lived in a time of crooked leadership, of failed leadership, failed kings, the author wanted Israel to look forward to a future reality, to a future reality. And that is what we're going to look at right now, is that the future, real the future reality of Israel are also for us at this time the benefits, the reality for us now. And as we look through verse 35, we see the interaction of who's described as a faithful priest, which I believe um, for us as believers, since we are Christians, we can learn from this and in some way put, our, put, our, put ourselves in his shoes in this passage, realizing that we literally benefit just as what's being talked about here. There's five benefits that we um, just really need to appreciate of what we have in Christ, take advantage of what we have in Christ. So here are the five benefits. First, a person who serves Christ is chosen and raised up by Yahweh. If you look at verse 35 again. It says, I will raise up for myself. That phrase is so wonderful. Because as we examine the sin in our lives, as we examine our propensity to failure, we see the Lord has said that he in his power will raise up. This language for raise up is literally, is often used to translate the word to stand up, Right? I think we all hopefully know that we can't stand up on our own when it comes to pleasing the Lord. We need his help. And this is a promise. The Lord says, 
I will raise up for myself. And even um, beyond that, the tense of this verb is a causative, where literally, if you were to translate it, it would say, I, I will cause you to stand. And note, there's actually a purpose given for why Yahweh is doing this for myself. What the Lord does with us is for his own glory. Um, and in so many ways, that's so exciting and wonderful. Because I think so many times we're tempted in our lives to be looking at our circumstances and wondering, why is this happening? Well, here's the confidence that we have, is that it's for Yahweh's glory. It's for his glory. And also, it says here, a faithful priest. So here, the idea of priests um, is not limited to the idea of someone serving in an office. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests, right? Here's God's purpose for having such priests, is for them to faithfully represent who he is to the world. So the Lord strategically put Israel on this major trade route so that all the countries in the north want to trade with the south and vice versa had to go through Israel. So here's what the Lord gave Israel. Lots and lots of laws. And these laws were not, were not meant to be looked at as in this is how I obtain my salvation. The laws had a different purpose. The laws taught and pointed to how Yahweh saves. All the sacrificial system involved a lot of blood. You know, in um, children's books, we talk about sacrifices. It would be terrible to actually show what a sacrifice looked like because the priests were just dripped, were just dripping in blood. It was, just, it was a slaughter. And that picture was important because it taught about the severity of sin before a holy God. Every time an animal was being sacrificed and butchered, it was a picture that this should be you. And they saw a picture of the Lord, of the more and more sacrifices were there, was also to teach them that they needed a sacrifice to end it once and for all. And we see throughout the Old Testament, this sacrifice is talked about to be the Messiah. Um, in especially Isaiah chapters 52, 53, it describes a person being sacrificed the Messiah and the Lord accepting the sacrifice. So everything Israel was to be doing, they were supposed to be doing to be a faithful representatives to who the Lord is, to the future promise of Christ the Messiah. And so for us too, is that we are also called to be faithful to the Lord. Everything that we do in our lives in whatever job we have, in whatever relationship we have with another person, every interaction, we represent who Christ is. From our life to our evangelism, which there is an evangelism event coming this Tuesday night, by the way. Um, and that's the purpose of the church. In Acts chapter 1-8, Christ told the disciples that you will be my witnesses. And also to the end of the earth right? Totality. That's why we care about missions. That's why we care about evangelism. And that's why also we should care about our sanctification, our walk before the Lord, because we represent 
who Christ is and his salvation. There is another benefit if we continue on and we read, there is the benefit of being enabled by God to obey him. It says in the text, so I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. The Lord has a plan and we see that um, the Lord had this plan for other people in the Old Testament. David is described as someone who would do what is according to God's heart and mind. Of course, the ultimate example of this is Christ Jesus, right? And there's also a purpose for us that we do, that we do according to what is in the heart and mind of God. You know what this means? This means that the way that we think, the way that we think when we interact with people, the way that we think when we read the Bible um, should be according to God's mind. And of course, we have God's mind, and the New Testament says that we have the mind of Christ, right? And we have his word. So we actually know how God thinks. We know how our thinking is supposed to be conformed to his thinking, his word, through the power and the enablement of God. And also it says, according to his heart. The heart was a term in the Old Testament that actually also involved thinking and intellectual ability. It also involved your affections. What things are we to love in this world? The things that God loves. What things are we to not love in the world? The things that God does not love. The things that God hates. And this is a benefit and also what we see that we have this special enabling from God. And we see that in the next verse. And I will build him a sure house. This language here of build, it talks about God's involvement. And the idea here of sure house is this idea of ministry. Again, if we flash back to the specific context um, is that we're reading about how one ministry failed. Eli, he failed in his ministry, right? And so we have this promise that the Lord has a ministry for his people and he is in charge of this ministry, of a specific ministry that he will specifically bless and he will build. Again, that's what Israel was to look forward to and that's what we experience now is that as we have faith in Christ, as we walk before the Lord faithfully, as we are doing what is in his word, as we are loving what the Lord loves, we know that God's work is there. We know that God's presence is there because we are following his plan, a plan which he has initiated, a plan which he sustains by his own power. And lastly, the last benefit I want to draw attention to out of this verse is the benefit of being united with Christ. If you look down here, it says, and he shall go in and out before. That's the language of a relationship. Not only language of a relationship, but that is the language of a relationship used 
primarily, specifically of God. So the question is, how do we have such a relationship with God because we're such wretched sinners? Well, here it says, my Messiah. This verse is hinting at, and I believe teaching clearly, that the Messiah is the one through whom we can have a relationship with God. And it says here, uses the language of God, of the Messiah. The Messiah God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the only one who can mediate a relationship between us and God. And that, that is the benefit that we have, that we have in Christ. So the identity of these two characters is important because they speak of that future reality that Israel is going to experience. We experience it now, you know, and we are not, we must not, we are not like Eli's sons who are insubordinate to God's word, insubordinate to leaders, to rulers. They were sexually immoral. They uh, caused people to despise um, the sacrifices that were to teach how holy God is. We are not those things. We are raised up by Yahweh to glorify him. We are witnesses of the great salvation that Christ accomplished on the cross. We are witnesses of his resurrection. Uh, when I say witnesses, we didn't literally witness it, but we have his word, which is just as sure. And his ascension to the Father's right hand. We are enabled by the power of God to think biblically and to love like God loves, to love what God loves, and we are enabled to make decisions that honor God. We endure by the power of God, and we are united to God the Father through the work of Christ, the Son of God, the faithful high priest. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, you are so wonderful, Lord. Uh, we thank you for all the benefits that we have in Christ. Um, I pray this day, Lord, that in whatever area that we represent you, uh, whether it would be as um, parents to children, whether it would be uh, workers in the workplace, um, whether it would be um, whatever involvement we have in ministry, that we would remember that we first understand ministry by first our relationship that we have with Christ and who he is. I pray you would remind us of these things today. In your son's name, amen. amen.